Experience the most delicious, entertaining, and bizarre parts of life in the big city with New York Magazine's collection of podcasts, available exclusively from Panoply. Tune into the Grub Street podcast for restaurant trends that'll soon be sweeping the country. Catch exclusive interviews with the stars of your favorite TV shows with the Vulture TV podcast. And check out Sex Lives for intimate discussions of sex in the real city. It's like taking a trip to New York from the comfort of your earbuds. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me today, as always, is New York Magazine sex columnist Maureen O'Connor. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. Allison's out this week, but we've got, as a guest on our show, Kevin Allison of The Great Risk Podcast. Before we get to him, we wanted to remind you about the Sex Lives voicemail box. Call us at 646-494-3590. But before we start talking with Kevin, Maureen, I know you wanted to talk about this fascinating piece that appeared on The Science of Us by Holly Dunsworth called, this is like, Annals of Fantastic Headlining, Why No One is Interested in Vagina Size. Right. So Holly Dunsworth, she's um, a professor of anthropology at the University of Rhode Island. And The Science of Us actually reprinted a story, um, a blog post she written for, for a sort of wonkier academic blog. But basically what it came down to is she pointed out the amount of academic energy and sort of science reporting energy that goes towards explaining why the male penis is sort of disproportionately long and large, why it's shaped the exact way it is, if it's scooping out semen from the vagina, you know, all kinds of like mating competition and whatnot. And she points out, isn't it just as likely or perhaps more likely that the female vagina changed for the fact that, say, humans have larger craniums than, like, everything else um, and are walking upright, and thus the vagina must be a different shape and length, and then that the penis followed that. And she sort of points out this sort of bizarre, I guess... Just male-centric. Yes, male phallocentric... Literally. Look, very literally. (laughs) um, She points out that even in, like, the only article she could find that hypothesize that, you know, the vagina, in fact, developed for various, you know, facets of human childbirth, and that drove the shape of the penis. This male doctor then ends his article on it, in some man's larger penis is a consequence of his larger brain, as opposed to (laughs) the larger brains of everybody made the vagina bigger, made the penis bigger. Um, I thought this was really amazing in the way that it gave you this bizarre sort of like, whoa, never even thought about that. Why haven't we thought about that? I mean, just you know, <laughs> centuries of backward gender dynamics in the laboratory and like the academy, I guess, right? I guess so. It reminded me, I read this essay once about um, that critiqued the way like health books describe um, like the egg and sperm and the process of fertilization. And they're saying they always describe the sort of active sperm like forging forth and like capturing this very passive egg and she's like couldn't it just as easily be an egg capturing one of these like stray confused sperms that are flying all over the place with no sense of where they're going and it's interesting that even in the course of science we sort of fall to this like female passivity even when we're trying to understand evolution totally was there any comparative animal vagina studying to do like about the ways that um humans vaginas differ from other mammals or anything like that because the thing that i kept thinking about was just this um, the series of articles or maybe it was just one article in the times about the duck penis and the duck vagina which or that can... that one famous gif of the like Incredible. infinite springing corkscrew anybody who's listening now if you don't know what we're talking about just google duck penis <laughs> 
go for the image search. I mean, maybe not if How you're at the you kind of workplace. It? Like a telephone cord. But yeah. a telephone cord, but like, you know, like when your telephone cord gets stretched out in weird places and has like these kinks and like double loops here and there? Yeah. Like that, because it's like an erratic corkscrew and it's like double the length of the duck. And the vagina is the actual exact inverse of that. Yeah. Well, it's almost like, um, you know what it also reminds me of? Because it's when you read these, they're saying that like the duck vagina is this crazy Byzantine like path and then the duck penis you know uh, who knows they're sort of co-evolving to make things trickier and more difficult um it also reminds me of you know when the rato rooter guy comes and he like puts <laughs> that thing down and you're like how does that weird spring thing it just like bounces around until it somehow gets its way through all the like knotted piping and you just think oh, oh my god the inside of a duck vagina must be so unpleasant with like the <laughs> bouncing around of corkscrew kinked up fire hose penis i think the duck ma- the male ducks are probably pretty happy when they're inside the the duck vagina i don't think it's unpleasant for them you know as a kid once i remember seeing um these ducks mating and it was like such a terrorizing thing <laughs> shrieking and it was and like, like the beginning of like my understanding of rape in the animal world oh or something god. i remember it being really Birds mating is always a horrific thing to witness. Well, anything that can make really shrieky noises. Yeah. That's right. Like, the noise is the worst part. Kind of all animals mating is horrific. Yeah. Except for maybe, like, dragonflies, because they just float around, like, doubled up. And it looks like they're, like, double, double luge skiing or something. Right. So we've been talking about Holly Dunsworth's article, Why No One is Interested in Vagina Size. And also we've been talking about how much we're interested in animals' vagina size. <laughs> Next, we're going to be joined in the studio by Kevin Allison, host of The Risk Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's really, it's really actually a thrill to talk. So, um, Risk started as a storytelling podcast and has grown into something more focused on sex and weirdness. I know that's not exclusively what you do, but I wondered if at the start you felt like there was something you wanted to fix about the way that we tell stories about sex or the way we talk about sex or whether that grew over time. I absolutely did. I, I don't know exactly how how much of the idea I had formulated in my mind right from the start, but I did know this. I grew up super aware that I was gay. Like when I, w- I remember being five years old and being terrified that I was gonna have to go to kindergarten in a year because I knew that I was attracted to boys. I specifically knew I liked boys' butts. (laughs) And I also knew what the words fag and gay Uh meant. You know what I mean? Like I was just a very precocious and self-aware kid and that was a terrifying experience. I, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is a very, very like Republican and very Mm -hmm. uh, Catholic town. And so I I grew up very aware that I was hiding something, that I was aware of it and that I was deliberately hiding it for my own safety. During uh, the 12 years between when my sketch comedy group, The State, broke up and when I started Risk, I had been going to auditions and auditions to try to fit the role of what you know, CBS and ABC and NBC think a gay man might be or that kind of thing, you know, the clean cut, this, that, and the other. And... uh, I I just it just wasn't me. And so I finally just gave up and said, why don't I get up on stage and start speaking just the raw truth about my actual experience and see what happens? I was terrified to do it, uh, but it changed everything for me. And when the podcast started taking off. Uh, I, you know, people realized that they could talk about, they could come 
out about anything, you know, not just sexual issues, but uh, it really has become this place where people speak in a much rawer and realer way. And going back to what you were talking about a minute ago before you did that, was that, um, and you were feeling like you were performing roles that other people had in mind, or what you imagined other people had in mind for you, was that true in your personal life too, or was that just something you were doing in performance? Well, you know, it's weird because I was, when I moved to New York when I was 18, that's when I felt like I could start being actively gay. I mean, I, I, I started coming out to friends in high school. I went to a uh, Catholic all-boys high school in Cincinnati and started coming out there. But when I got to New York, I felt like I could really start adventuring and exploring, except I didn't realize how difficult it would be to make that transition because I associated competition uh, with straight guys and with anxiety. And I just didn't like the way that guys especially could become so aggressive with one another mm -hmm. in, in the competitive realm. And I also had just grown used to thinking of homosexuality as my thing, right? There's something a little bit like to this very day, I walk around sometimes and I'll see like cute gay guys just totally owning it and everything and being like, oh, so you think you can do this too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's, it's just weird. It's just having that epic childhood of just being in my own head, being like, I'm one of the only ones in the world feeling that way. Uh, made me, by the time I started, you know, going out to gay bars here in New York, very, very filled with social anxiety. So my friends got to know that Kevin would do this. I would go out to gay bars, joke around and be silly with people in my comedic sort of way. Uh, but they always said, Kevin will be gone within about a half hour. He'll, be, he'll do about a half hour of socializing, and then he's going straight to a sex club where he can just have sex and not have to have conversations with people. And the, break, the professional breakthrough that you described before, was that, did that portend things for, you know, make things better in that front? You know, it's really interesting because <laughs> one of the things that happened was that someone dared me to go to a kink camp at one mm -hmm. point uh, when this is around 2011. So Risk was about two, maybe two and a half years old at that time. Uh, and this is like a landmark episode of that oh, show. Oh, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I I went to this kink camp and it was weird for me because... I was very, I had always been a very sexual guy, very active sexual guy, but I had never explored kink in a, in a really, like, I don't know, constructive and productive way like kinksters will do at some of mm -hmm. these camps where there's teachers there, there's, there's taste and explore activities, there's all kinds of, um, oh, I don't know, just... Uh, activities and parties. I feel like it's such the like millennial helicopter parented kid version <laughs> yeah. of like being a perv. You're like, yeah. check box, one, two, three, like got all my merit badges. Now I'm good to go. It it, it really is. It, it's funny because, you know, a lot of people said, oh, if you're going into that kink realm, that could be like a Pandora's box. And I thought, oh yeah, whatever. 
But it has been. Pandora's box in a bad way or a good? I in, always forget that in the myth, something bad happens at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. you open it up and everything happens. It's like a jackpot, be you know? Yeah. I think that in a part of the myth, it becomes like the tree of knowledge where it starts to curse you, you know? But isn't that great? Because the tree of knowledge is when they get to start having sex, right? <laughs> right. These myths are always really hard for me. They it's are. like the thing of these plain drinking games, like beer pong, and they're like, you lose, you get to get drunk. And right. I'm like, isn't that what we wanted to happen anyways? That's right. Go go to hell. Well, it seems a lot more fun there. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I I discovered a couple of kinks in this process of being so open to all this uh, that I actually haven't yet talked about on the podcast, that I haven't felt comfortable going there. Uh, and it has to do with a couple of things. It has to do with, A, when I tell a story, I always want to be sure that I have processed this. You know what I mean? That I have like gotten some meaning out of it and like know where I stand to a certain extent. Um, and also I want to make sure that I will be able to communicate it in such a way that would actually be beneficial for people on some level. You know, that is to say that most people would be able to hear it and be like, ah, oh, okay, that kind of clicks, even though I might not be into what that guy's into, I get the emotional vibe of what he's talking about. So I was so disturbed to have kind of discovered some things where I was like, oh, this is a little too dirty or too weird or too whatever for me to feel like I can talk about right now that I got myself a therapist. I went to <laughs> um, Kink Professional, Kink Aware Professionals, I think it's called, is a website where you can find a therapist mm -hmm. who is going to not pathologize your... It's interesting. There's like a whole little cottage industry for <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's been Those amazing. Those must have such interesting, like, party chatter. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's been awesome. It's the first time I've had a therapist who is a peer. He's a gay man. You know, I've always had therapist before that were women and a mother thing just couldn't help but click in with me. Yeah. And my mom is the person archetypically in my head with whom I associate sexual shame. You know, my mom was the one who was, you, you talk like a girl, you know, stop using your hands so much, you know, this, that, and the other, and, and very like conform, conform, conform. When I started discovering some of this other kinky stuff, I started to feel like, oh, wait, I'm feeling some shame or some, you know, like after masturbating, feeling like, whoa, mm -hmm. a little bit frightened, you know, um, which is the way I felt when I was like 10 years old, you know, just thinking about guys being like, oh, what did I do? You know, the shame that you sometimes feel after. Yeah. But there's something to be said about like that negative positive pattern, like being alluring in itself. Yeah. I read that book, Perv by uh, Jesse Baring, and he said that that with so many of these kinks, there is this tight rope that a person walks between lust and disgust. And it's often like as soon as you come, a person will be like, well, get me out of here. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and do you find that sort of same balance with a lot of the people that you've had on risk? Yeah, it's it's really interesting because to call to, to collect so many stories from so many people it's kind of an eye-opener like mm -hmm. it, it it really does make me feel uh frustration with religion in general we just did a show in salt lake city and 
everyone choice of a venue. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone who got up what had either been excommunicated in a dramatic way or was that very night going through the angst of as soon as this goes up, I might be excommunicated. Wow. You know what I mean? Uh, except for the final guy who was an EMT who had stories about dealing with like people dying on him. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm over the Mormon thing. <laughs> it is kind of funny how perspective changes uh-huh. when you add a little something more dramatic even. But yeah, it, it to me, it is fascinating to see how like certain things are kind of like becoming a little bit blasé to me. I'm interested sort of generally in the way, since we're talking about shame in particular, how our more and more permissive sexual culture, how that tra- transforms what is a what can be sex acts charged with shame. Yeah, I feel like even in those four years since Kevin went to kink camp, I mean, tell me if, if you feel like this, but I feel like the idea of kink has become radically more mainstream in those even those last four years. I think so. I think you're right. I mean, have we almost reached the point where the kinkiest thing you can do is not be kinky? Oh, well, yes, we have featured, <laughs> we have recently featured someone who uh, talked about being asexual. Mm-hmm. And I was very excited about that because I felt like, okay, yeah, that's that's different. Uh, another thing that, that, like, is one of the riskiest things we run nowadays is when someone talks about believing in God. Yeah. Because the, the audience, the risk audience we know <laughs> is just going to come at us with those emails of this isn't a place for people to be, you know, like, you know, people are angry because they're atheists or whatever and they don't expect to hear that kind of talk on the show. I mean, my idea of the show is a person can talk about whatever is true for them. What kind of topics do you think have the same or have a similar charge to the way sexual revela- revelations do? Like if, if they're, I don't know, what if there are certain genres of conversation that make people react with the same sort of set of feelings or... I think, you know, when when people talk about tremendously emotional fights that they've mm-hmm. had, like uh, uh, fights in their families, um, or... Uh, moments of trauma. I call these things, uh, I've traditionally called these things like Kairos moments because I was raised very Catholic. And that, that's <laughs> what a does word. that mean? It's an old word from the Greeks, um, meaning different from Kronos. Kronos is just ordinary time, and Kairos are those really loaded moments where, according to the Catholics, you become aware of the presence of God. Mm -hmm. But in the old Greek sense, you're just like, whoa, oh my gosh, let me take everything in here because something super special is happening right now or something I really care about. Yeah, it's interesting. All three of those things you talked about, sex, family fights, and trauma, they're all stories that you can never really get to the bottom of or really feel like you've processed completely. Yeah. that's Even when you're on top of it, there's still... They're still weird in you. Yeah. I always hesitate if I feel like a person is putting too too much of a the moral of the story is or and so what I learned was at the end of it. Um, I mean, they they certainly can. And I have done that myself, too. But if it feels too specific, I always feel like, well, you might feel differently about that in a year or two, you know. Uh, for example, the first story I ever told on Risk was uh, about I go to a sex I'm like 18 years old. I go to a sex club and go home with a guy and he he makes me tie my shoes to my balls. 
And, and <laughs> I uh, didn't see it coming. You know, like I had no idea. That sounds that... like a tricky nodding. <laughs> like, I mean, you've got to like be a sailor in order to get it done. <laughs> no, what he wanted me to do was to tie the laces together like he would if you were going to throw them. Oh, over, and then wrap over... them around? Yeah, like a propeller. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that the shoes would hang at my shins. And, and you know, the Those weird... Those are long shoelaces. Yeah. Shins. <laughs> or All right. ball, long balls. Could or long, be long balls, balls yeah. yeah. All right. We've got one or the other. <laughs> um, but I've since, I've since seen this. You know, it's the funniest thing. We talk about kinks. I have seen other people doing this on Xtube, you know? Uh, in fact, I found a guy who his part, what his uh-huh. take on the fetish is... The brand. He'll be like, okay, and now Adidas. You know what I mean? <laughs> Product placement. <laughs> how do you feel like that? the whole like cornucopia of porn has changed all this? Like how easy it is to find? Oh, the internet more than anything has changed the way that we discover things. You know, I was talking to my therapist just the other day. I was saying... I wrote porn stories for Playguy magazine in the 90s. And I was saying, yeah, I remember I was specifically into that magazine because one, it focused on twinks, which is kind of my Mm -hmm. type. And two, they were very not shy about buttholes, which previous gay porn really had been. And my therapist was like, absolutely. He was like, in the 90s, butthole became okay. And then... You know, it, it's you. You watch how the internet started making even more and more and more things okay. Until you go to some of these sites, and there's such an enormous array of right. possible fetishes. And then you know, some for for stuff that isn't even like classifiable, it'll just be like, what the fuck, you know? Uh-huh. Is this the category? You know, there's a good there's good and bad to that. The bad is that on the internet you can get into this habit of just like relating to sex as like a two minute long thing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And you can get I feel that for some of us we can get so narrowly focused on fetishistic stuff that we can start to forget oh, I used to also be attracted to this kind of guy. And, oh, yeah, I once had fun doing that sort of thing. Like, every now and then I feel like I have to, like, throw some water in my face and say, hey, 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 you've been kind of, like, doing the same thing for a while. Shake it up a little bit. I know Dan Savage will often tell people, if you're used to having an orgasm the same way every time, like from a specific toy Mm -hmm. or a particular technique, uh change it you know force yourself to try new things i have a question yeah you've talked before about racial fetishes mm-hmm. have you not mm-hmm. um i am curious if you think because i am very openly on the record of really hating that shit mm. that was another reason that i went to this therapist was mm-hmm. uh, was because i specifically felt that it was weird that I had become so specifically attracted to Asian men mm-hmm. in my 40s. Now, granted, I had just come out of a nine-year marriage to an right. Asian man, right? But when I was in my 20s, I was aware of a racial dynamic that was mm-hmm. going on in my sex life because I had come from an incredibly white 
background, very segregated where I grew up in Cincinnati, right? So when I came to New York, I was just really kind of blown away. And my, I, I joke with people that my sex mm-hmm. life in my 20s was like a Benetton ad. Um, but what happened in my 40s was that I was like, wow, I have really, I really feel like I have become very, very specifically not exclusively, but definitely mm-hmm. kind of in an ob- in an obsessive way, attracted to Asian men. And it's worrisome to me because it feels like, well, why? And I guess what just worries me about it is that I just don't want to box myself into a corner. You're not worried about what you're doing to these people who you're objectifying? <laughs> this is about you? This is crazy. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. <laughs> I'm in the world, in the realm that I come uh-huh. into. I am the guy who is bowing down. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Like, like, like in, like in the story beyond King Camp. That's uh-huh. that's the dynamic that's right. happening. So yes, of course, I definitely worry about what I'm doing to other right. people. Uh, you know, very much so. I think I have both feelings: boxing myself into a mm-hmm. corner and boxing someone else into a corner. Now we've had other stories about uh, race play, specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, the story "Slave" by Melina Williams is definitely one of the most loaded stories we've ever run on the show. Being young and black, she grew up kind of like becoming titillated by this idea of being submissive, being it. It starts with Star Trek, something that she sees Mm -hmm. on Star Trek. Um, And eventually she develops a relationship with a man who's willing to play with her like she's a plantation slave and he's the white cracker, you know. Uh, And eventually she has an experience with this where they've negotiated everything. It's just they didn't negotiate very well. Mm -hmm. But it became a deeply psychologically traumatic experience for her. So that was a fascinating story because she was able to, in the end, kind of come out and say, I don't regret that I explored that area, but I do want to tell people this is so deeply loaded that you could get very you could get very hurt doing this kind of thing psychologically well there's certain things that you're into but you sort of don't want the other person to be more into than you are yeah, you know yeah 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 you're like i want to play this game but i don't want you to really really think that you actually own me yeah yeah for sure sometimes you i'll speak to people online who are like, no, no, seriously, I want to, like, move into your place and be in, put in a cage and live there forever and stuff like that. And you're like, um, oh, no. I know, the guy who really wants that is not the guy I want to do that to me, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 right. <laughs> um, have you spoken to many gay men who have talked about specifically having a a type yeah, we talked. Well, the episode when Rich Joswiak was here, we talked about that a little bit about race, and we were talking about how sort of um, sort of knee jerk, you're an asshole. It is if say you're on like straight Tinder, okay, Cuban, and a guy's like, I like Asian chicks, and you're like, you're a piece of shit. Right. And he's like, this is super common on Grinder and all, you know, elsewhere. There's something about I think objectification from man to man that we're like, maybe that's just fundamentally different than when it's sort of an objectification from man to woman. It is, and it isn't. Mm-hmm. I feel like a guy like me 
gets away with saying a lot of things in my stories that a straight man wouldn't. You know, a lot of people find it charming the way that I'm able to be so open about some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. But then other people have literally told me, if I was an Asian man, I'd be kind of creeped out that you said that in your story. Honestly, like, and I say this as a half Asian woman, for those who hear the name Maureen O'Connor and don't recognize it, but like it creeped me out, mm-hmm, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you seem like very conscientious about these things, mm-hmm. but there's just something so. It's really hard to fault people for what they like. Mm-hmm. And yet there is also this part of me that will never fault a minority for wanting to fuck around with race. But there's something about white people that are too into <laughs> race shit that I'm just like, sorry, shut it down. I also say this as a person with a white father, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. There's. Um... Well, it's interesting that, you know, the um, we think about the slave play as like something that's really fraught. And yet slave play between two men, no less, probably no less fraught, right? Yeah. That's like, uh, right. Um, would be just as complicated and require just as much negotiation beforehand. There's something about also the ways of being objectified. I mean, I can handle someone objectifying me for like parts of my body, but when it's race, I associate race with my parents, you know? And uh-huh. there's just something so viscerally upsetting to me about it that I can't ever get over. Yeah, whenever I do get into this conversation, people will say, well, you can be attracted to someone for the shape of their body or, you know, their genitalia or yada, 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 all these things. And I'm like, yeah, but race reminds people of their families. There's history. There's politics. Nobody's actually just attracted to the type of eyes Asian haves. Because first of all, that kind of eye can happen on anyone, right? right? right, Like, it's not that. Right, yeah. You know, one of the things that I've theorized a little bit about is that I think that round about in my late 20s, early 30s, when I would go to sex clubs a lot, I think I developed, like, my own maybe prejudices or, Mm -hmm. like, or glasses that I was looking through from all the rejection. When you Mm -hmm. go into a sex club, uh, you're just rejected left and right. And with men, it's often, it often has to be downright physical. I mean, sometimes it's hitting someone to get them away. But what I found was, especially in those places where you walk by room after room after room after room after room of guys down a hallway just mm-hmm. standing in a doorway, white guys would often, like, just scare me because they would seem, like, so, like, I don't know, judgy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that black guys were not interested in me. And that Latino guys I was very interested in, but somehow was not able to, like, make a an emotional and connection with so easily. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I was regularly finding some sort of, like, simpatico comfortableness uh, with Asian guys in those clubs. And I think that that was kind of, like... Formative. Yeah. In terms I, of some kind of feedback pattern or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just interesting to hear you talk about a sex party or sex club as being full of rejection. Like, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like that's the, the, that's what it the is. majority <laughs> of what you're doing is being rejected. You know, it's so fucked up. <laughs> I would leave a bar because I didn't mm-hmm. feel like I could have conversations. Then I'd go to the sex club. Someone would let me in his room. And I'd want to have a conversation. I'll never forget, I once, like there was a guy that I would see at this sex club so often, and I know that gay men are like, don't talk at these things, you know, you're gonna ruin it. 
Um, but we had hooked up several times, and he was so much fun. So I said to him afterwards, uh, can I have your phone number? Mm-hmm. And he looked at me like a deer in headlights, and he said, oh, uh, it's in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Sorry. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, as, as far as that whole, my particularly being so attracted to Asian guys, this will be a story that hopefully I can speak about more intelligently at some point in the future. I appreciate, though, because I think it's so rare that somebody will admit to having a sort of racial preference and be able to speak about it intelligently. Um, and I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think the number one reason, though, that, like, I will instantly run for, like, the only deal breaker with men will be that I'll be like, oh, yeah, so what are your last two girlfriends? Asian, Asian, fuck, I'm out of here. <laughs> and, like, it's very, I know <sighs> there's, like, some level in which I think I'm probably being unfair and yet can't fucking do it. I look forward to your racial fetish episode. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, thanks so much for coming out. Thank you. Our guest has been Kevin Allison, host of The Risk Podcast, and we're sort of out of time. Um, things got away from us, so that's it for Sex Lives for this week. But we wanted to remind you to call us at 646-494-3590. Um, you can let us know about the kinkiest things that you've been too afraid to talk about, or maybe in particular about your own experience with racial fetish on either side. Or your corkscrew vagina, should you have one. If you happen to have one. <laughs> um, And that's it. Thanks to Sam Dingman, our producer. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. See you guys next time, and thanks for listening.